Uh, my name is Paul Norris. Uh, there is my email, and I will send a copy of this presentation to anybody who requests it from me, so you don't have to worry about taking notes on everything. Uh, I'm in Academic Research Systems at UCSF, and what we do, we have uh, two uh, major projects, and I'll just quickly describe them. One is my research, and that is a virtual environment for researchers to put their confidential data, confidential medical data that they have on patients, or any other data for that matter, in a completely virtualized environment that's in the data center is an extremely well-protected. Um, our second major initiative is called the Integrated Data Repository, and that's a place where we are going to get vast amounts of medical information from our clinical systems, and we're going to store that in de-identified format um, in a server environment, actually Sybase IQ, and it may get to be terabytes by the time we're done with it, and where researchers can do inquiries against this de-identified data. And if you're familiar with the medical research process, researchers go through hell now to get data from clinical systems so that they can investigate hypotheses. It may take, you know, six months to get the data they need to investigate a hypothesis that we hope with our system they will be able to do in maybe half an hour or two hours or something like that. So it could make a vast, vast difference in the world of medical research. Uh, this is all funded uh, by CTSA grants, and UCSF is one of the major recipients. There are quite a few others as well. Um, since this is such a small group, I'd like to do something dangerous and ask, you know, just have everybody tell me your name, uh, maybe just something very quickly about your technical background and what drew you to this talk so that I have some idea, you know, it's pretty well canned, but I can focus a little bit, depend on uh, what people might be interested in. So, um, Robert, can I start with you over there? Thank you. Thanks. Great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great. Thanks. My name is Rob Great. Thanks. I just ran Thanks. Great. Thanks. Sir, way in back. Thanks. Thanks. Rune Stromfest from UC Berkeley. And my department runs the campus ID card, which allows the child care services have to keep Social Security numbers up. Thanks. Yeah. My name is Rob Turner. I'm the IT manager in a large department on, at UC Davis, and uh, we run the security workstations. Okay. Oh, that would be the laptop, I think. Okay, well, we can fix that, I think. Oh, yeah, it just went dead, didn't it? No. Oh, how challenging. <laughs> well, to fill in the time while the projector comes back to life. Um, I actually realized, uh, I gave this presentation in a, um, 
uh, rehearsal, it wasn't exactly rehearsal, it was kind of for real at our um, computer support coordinators group uh, in San Francisco. And so I've actually come to realize that what this presentation is actually really about is not exactly a high security workstation, it's a high security work environment for somebody who has access to massive amounts of PHI. So that will probably become clear um, as I go on with the talk. Um, but so I just wanted to make that clear. And when I wrote up this description, you know, it was like four months ago, and I hadn't even prepared the presentation at that time. Um, okay, well, maybe we're coming back to life here. Okay, thank you. So, uh, what is the situation? This, and this is the situation in which I found myself, and uh, perhaps many of you or all of you find yourselves in the same situation. Um, well, some of this is... So what I do um, is I work with uh, some of the very confidential data from actually multiple sources. Um, I have a virtual machine at uh, the San Francisco General Hospital facility, uh, and that virtual machine has query access to the entire lifetime clinical record um, in San Francisco. So hundreds of millions of patient records going back to uh, 1996. Um, I have another virtual machine uh, that just now got access to a copy of uh, UCARE, uh, which is uh, one of our major clinical care systems, and um, another one that will soon have access to our entire dental database. So there's a huge amount of database in it, or, uh, data, and again, but it's all the virtual machines in protected environments that have direct access to that data, not my workstation. But I was still concerned about how do I protect my workstation so that a hack of my workstation does not become an entry for somebody to get into those virtual machines and do evil deeds and download vast amounts or actually it would be only a small amount of data. It could be extremely embarrassing to us. Um, and Threads was uh, what I actually started at, which is about three years ago, which was the San Francisco General Hospital thing, uh, which I mentioned. Um, and I think this is probably more common to everybody. Um, we have so many reasons to minimize our risk. Uh, the laws are getting more unfavorable to us all the time um, with no resources allocated for us to meet those laws. And at this point, we sit around in a room and we say, well, what does this law mean? And the best answer we can come up with is, well, it's going to be determined in the courts because the laws are just so unclear. Um, this is the point uh, in the presentation where people's eyes glaze over and they just really kind of zone out because everybody knows this and just wants to forget about it. Um, and this is probably a good time for me to say that I invite questions at any time during the presentation, especially in a small group like this. Um, so don't be shy. If something, you know, comes up in the moment, go ahead and ask it. And is there anything at this moment anybody wants to ask? Hearing nothing, we'll move on. Oh, one thing worth pointing out here, uh, in addition to the laws, the attacks are getting a lot more sophisticated. Conficker is something much more sophisticated than we've ever seen before. It seems it was written by somebody who actually really knew what they were doing. Um, I listened to, I think, about an almost two-hour podcast of Security Now with Steve Gibson. I love that podcast. And talking about all the stuff that Conficker has to make it really, really difficult to clean it up and defeat it. Um, it, had, it uses um, public and private keys 
so that you can't even modify, uh, use modified versions of it to destroy it. Um, it uses thousands and thousands of potential websites to hook up with. It does peer-to-peer -peer networking. I mean, it's incredible. And actually, the guy in the office next to me was one of the very first people to experience Conficker. And he follows good security practices. But when he got it, it was a day zero virus. So how would he know? And I think it's going to be more and more the case that data is going to be the target. Um, the data has value um, for extortion or just for a lot of other purposes. And much as we would like to think that, oh, they're just going to hack the computer and leave the data alone, no, they're probably really going after the data these days. Now, another reason um, to, uh, to really think about this stuff is simple fear. Um, this is, you know, I'd wake up at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd be thinking, what is my computer doing? You know, is this the time that I've gotten that day zero keystroke logging root kick, you know, that absolutely nobody knows about and is undetectable once you get it, sending my passwords and everything else out to the world? Uh, I used to look a lot like Sigourney Weaver back when this picture was taken. So what are the goals of the High Security Work Environment Project? Uh, one of the first things was, you know, given that there are day zero exploits, I don't know what you can do to be absolutely certain that you're never, ever, ever going to get hacked. So the goal is not just to prevent infection in the first place, but that if there is an infection, that you can stop phoning home and you can know that phoning home has not happened. So that has driven a lot of this. Um, it has to be cost effective. I say relatively because when you see the way this was implemented, you may look at me and say, you think that's cost effective? But there's also, uh, towards the end, I'll give an alternative way of doing it um, that's cost a lot less. Um, I can't spend 80% of my time being secure and 20% of my time getting something done. So I have to have, you know, minimal effect on my productivity. It has to be something I can live with. Um, one of the key things that drove me in this direction is that all these different data sources that I go after, each one of them has a different VPN. And what I've come to discover is VPNs can be very nasty. They don't work well with others. They certainly don't work well with each other. So, you know, trying to have multiple VPNs, even if only one of them is running at a time, just having them on the same machine and trying to be able to use them, um, I found, you know, it just turns out to be a real, real pain. Um, so that's actually was a real driving factor that drove me towards the architecture I came up with. And I have to admit, uh, this isn't for the general user base. Uh, those of you who have to support, you know, uh, the general user base, I hope you can take something from this that you can use. But this is truly an expert user solution as it stands right now. So I don't know how well you can see this. Um, this was the initial design that I came up with before I began to implement it. This is not what I ended up with, but I thought it would be instructive to start with this. Um, so basically the idea is this is the workstation. Uh, it has as little on it as possible. Um, it's behind a firewall. And in this case, what I ended up with was a Juniper SSG hardware firewall. And because of the idea of stopping phoning home, it's really important that this not be a software firewall that's running on the computer because a virus can turn that off. It really needs to be a hardware firewall that's external that the virus has no way of getting to and shutting down. 
Um, at the top is where I do my real work, virtual machines that have direct access to huge databases. Um, it needed to have ways to get to Microsoft Update. Uh, our antivirus is Sophos. It needed to get those updates. Um, this turned out to be really important. I realized eventually that there was no way that I could set this machine up to be secure and actually really make it usable for everything that I needed. Um, so part of what I do is I have an outboard laptop like this one. By the way, you can see we are serious about cost reduction at UCSF. We're not kidding. <laughs> this is my personal laptop. I actually really like it for travel. Um, you can't use it for real work, but it's good for traveling. Um, but anyway, so I really had to have some outboard machine, you know, that I could just run and go to any website I wanted to. And so what I do is I RDP into the laptop from the real machine. So I'm getting the full screen. You know, I use two monitors. Um, but there's no cross-contamination because it's just RDPing into this thing, just seeing the screen. Um, and then I need to be able to work from home, so I need to be able to remote into this machine from home. And again, if, um, if the network drive uh, facility in RDP is turned off, only thing that's being transferred is screen transmissions, keystrokes, mouse clicks, nothing else. Uh, any questions about this? Can you actually see this? I turn it off. I see no reason to run it with a hardware firewall there. You could certainly make an argument in the other direction and say, well, what the heck, it's just another level of protection. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does not have, well, let me qualify that. It's within, it's on a particular subnet um, at UCSF, and it's actually the one with all the other IT people. So it's not on its own subnet, but this firewall is configured so that this is a 192 address back here. So it's a non-routable IP that this machine gets. And this has a static IP, uh, which is necessary to be able to remote into it and also for access to some of the uh, virtual machines. They will only accept um, any, anything, any connection from that static IP. So, so you're running that? Yeah, I'm running that. Well, the, no, there's only the one. There's only the one. Okay, yeah, no, that's good. Good question. Thank you. And when I get to the next slide, again, remember, this was the original idea. I thought I was going to do firewall management from here, and I changed my mind about that. The idea at the time was, well, I don't want something here to be able to turn off the firewall. But as I thought about it, you know, nah, I thought it was better to do the firewall management from the inside. And I can actually really lock it down. I mean, I can do it. I'm not doing it yet, but I can do it via command line over the serial cable and unplug the cable. So, boom, then there's nothing in the world that can change that firewall unless something finds a, a defect in the firewall itself. So, the technologies that I'm using, uh, and these are the main technologies that underlie the design as it currently is being used. Um, hardware firewall, as I mentioned. Encryption, of course. Um, this machine actually does need to be completely encrypted. I'll be honest with you. It's not encrypted yet. It's going to be encrypted any day now. But I haven't had the courage yet to encrypt it with the stuff that I had to do. If I ever get to the point where I, have a, I can lose a day, then I'll encrypt it. <laughs> and that's going to be very soon. Um, now, 
This I haven't really talked about, and this ended up in the final design, uh, using virtual machines. And the virtual machines run on the workstation behind the firewall, and I'll show you more about that. Um, but again, this was really essential because, again, the question is, how do you deal with these multiple VPNs? And the only way I could come up with is we've got to have a separate computer, i.e. virtual machine, for each one of the VPNs. It's the only way I could figure out to keep them from screwing each other up and screwing up the main machine itself. Uh, limited use of admin, you know, it's really, it's hard to learn to live without running as admin if you're in the Windows environment. Um, but I found that I can do it. And believe it or not, Vista actually does this pretty well. Um, if you don't run as admin <coughs> in Vista and you try to do something that requires admin privileges, it asks you to do a quick log on to an admin account and then it lets you go ahead. So it's actually pretty close to the way Linux works once you are running a non-admin account in Vista. And to use the UAC is actually pretty close. It's just that it's too easy to click that thing and say yes instead of entering the password without thinking about what you're doing. Does that make sense? And I also mentioned, you know, you've got to have a machine you can really use the way you want to outside the firewall to get anything done, like researching stuff on the web. So this is the environment that I actually ended up with. Uh, it's similar to the original conception. <coughs> um, in fact, it's amazingly similar. The main difference is, again, the virtual machines. So the base machine just becomes really a host. I do run Office on it and a few basic things, but primarily it's a host for the virtual machines, and the virtual machines then connect. So we have a virtual machine connecting to a virtual machine in the protected data center, and that virtual machine has access to the real data. So this is a couple of levels of insulation between the box on my desk and the gold that, uh, that really needs to be protected. Um, workstation, yeah. This could be done in other ways as well. Um, I actually thought about making this an ESX box uh, and then just look, use the virtual machines from there, but then I need another workstation, you know, to look at the ESX box and the virtual machines on it. And that was just getting to be too many boxes. So that's why I ended up going with VMware Workstation. Uh, occasionally, um, uh, I will, you know, I will open up something in the firewall for a specific um, website on occasion. For example, Talend. I use Talend Open Studio for ETL work, uh, extract, transform, and loading data. And it just turns out that uh, being able to open up and load something down from Talend, I think, is, you know, reasonable. It's a single website. Um, so otherwise, this is mostly the same as what I said. Uh, one thing, yeah. Uh, one thing I don't think there's no more human beings from home. Uh, it's still there. I just didn't put it on the picture. <laughs> no, I, I decided I really need that. I don't do it that often. The home machine is actually... Uh, pretty close to being a duplication of this. So sometimes I just do stuff on the home machine and sometimes I remote into this machine. Um, something else that's different is DNS. Uh, you might notice the original design was all specific IPs and that's a wonderful idea, but you know, try figuring out how to make Microsoft Update run by specific IP address. Good luck. I was going to ask you how you 
Yeah. Yeah, the Juniper will do that. And uh, actually, well, let me just hit on Microsoft Update now. Uh, that was one of the most difficult things for me to figure out. And the way I finally figured out to do it, um, if you do a Google on um, Microsoft Update WSUS, there are a couple of technical articles that tell you the URLs uh, that you need to open up to. And they're not all Windows.com. Uh, like one is windowsupdate.com. And it gives you, it's about eight or nine URLs. And you have to open up to those to get Windows Update to really work. And that also means, of course, that the DNS has to allow all the lookups that are needed, however you configure the firewall for the DNS. Um, that was one of the most challenging things to figure out how to make work. Poor John watching this presentation a second time. <laughs> That's courage. <laughs> Let's see if there's any other questions about this. Um, in case I wasn't clear, there are multiple VP VMs, and the VMs on the workstation are specific to the particular project. So, for example, there is one VM that is used to connect to the virtual machine at San Francisco General Hospital, um, and it's configured specifically to work for that. There's another virtual machine that is configured to talk to the virtual machine in our medical center um, that holds the UCARE data or that has access to the UCARE data. I better be careful about that. Um, so multiple uh, VMs, and uh, that's why Vista 64-bit, to be able to run, say, two or three fully configured virtual machines at the same time, that doesn't work in four gigabytes of RAM. Um, you've got to have, you know, I run, I've got eight gigabytes of RAM on this system now. Um, and it really does need it to run that many virtual machines. Yeah. I actually don't know. The architecture was set up for me, but my educated guess is, yeah, it's a separate uh, virtual machine, or it's uh, maybe, it's, I'm sorry, it's a separate server that's managing the VPN. Yeah. Well, for example, at San Francisco General Hospital, the um, VPN that I'm using is the same, you know, obviously with a different username and password, but it's the same VPN that's used by all the UCSF people who get access to San Francisco General Hospital data remotely. So that one definitely is on a server, and that's, you know, fully managed by an IT department. Um, the one for the medical center uh, was set up for me specifically, and right now I'm the only person, you know, who uses it at all. Um, and I really didn't ask the details. And you know, I might not get a friendly reaction if I asked for all the details. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, anything else about this? Yeah, Heidi. What an interesting question. It's a small room. Um, I spoke to uh, our security folks about it. And, you know, I, I talked it over with Sean. Um, and I was really hoping, actually, to get a real audit on the design. And, unfortunately, what appears to have happened is that you know, there just were no resources for anybody to do an audit of it. So it's conversational. And, you know, it's educated. But there is no, there's no audit review process that this has gone through. Well, this is far more secure. Well, the data owners are all different cases. 
Um, but what the data owners, as far as the data owners knew, what I was going to be doing is I was going to be using my workstation, you know, just a normal, ordinary UCSF workstation with a lot of care, using the VPN that they gave me into the virtual machine that they were protecting. So what I have done is going far beyond what they ever expected. And in fact, they even know that I'm doing this. Um, I'm not sure if they know that I am or not. But it's at least as secure as what they think I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, well, you, you may, I, we just got two major data sets um, since Sunday. Uh, on Sunday, we got the, um, the UCARE data, which we've been trying to get for about a year and a half. And, um, yeah, and we got the dental data uh, actually at uh, 520 uh, last night as I was getting ready to leave for this, uh, for this conference. <laughs> and, yeah. <coughs> so, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good question, but leave it at that. What I'm doing is beyond what the data owners, um, or there's actually another party involved. Usually it's not just the data owners, but it's the security people who manage it. You know, like Tim Greer's group was involved in the SFGH stuff. And if I can digress for a moment, I mean, before I took the threads job and Tim Greer set up a virtual machine for me, the way that the access to the DPH data was being done was two old funky workstations sitting in an open office that didn't even have a locked door. And God only knows how much data was on those machines, you know, just sitting there because they directly accessed what I'm doing now with the virtual machines that Tim Greer manages for me in the data center. So we've come a long way. Should I have said that? Any? Oh my God, I'm being recorded. Can this be excised? <laughs> okay. Um, Here's the actual workflow and what the workflow looks like as I sit down to do this stuff. So I go to my workstation and it's, it's turned, I turn it off at night. Um, so I usually fire it up in the morning. And, um, you know, and again, you know, I do like my email and, you know, the conventional safe things I will just do on the bare workstation. It's got office on it. I mean, trying to run, um, do my email inside of a virtual machine, I just didn't quite find to be livable much as you'd like to think so. So I go here, I open a virtual machine, and again, it's a specific virtual machine. So let's talk about, you know, for the San Francisco data, which is the one, the first one, and the most mature one. So I open a virtual machine that is specifically for use on the San Francisco data. Um, actually, since this is a specific IP address, that I'm RDPing into. The truth is that this IP is open, this, uh, is open all the time. But I could certainly disable the firewall rule if I thought there was any reason to. But I mean, outbound to a specific IP that's very well protected, I really wasn't too worried about. Um, and then, um, so the, the virtual machine is open. The VPN is launched from the virtual machine here on the local workstation. And then it opens an RDP session um, over VPN to that virtual machine up there, and that's in the data center. So everything after that padlock is in the secure data center and uh, totally protected. And then that um, virtual machine there uh, actually connects to the database that holds the PHI. 
And so you can imagine what this looks like, you know. It was actually, I meant to get a screenshot of this, and a whole bunch of things came up the last few days that uh, I was back. Um, so, I mean, you can sort of imagine, you know, there's my screen, you know, which I log on to, and then there's a virtual machine within that. And then from that virtual machine, I open up another virtual machine, and I can make this stuff all full screen. So what I've learned is I have to color code these things, or I go crazy, you know, trying to figure out where I am. Um, and I think if you've worked with virtual machines, you'll discover that pretty quickly, you know. You've got to do something so you know where you're at. Run BG Info so it tells you which one it is. Rename the computer other than my computer so you can just look at the desktop and see which one you're in. Change the colors so you get a very subliminal thing that tells you which one you're in. Um, you just have to do stuff like that. And even now and then, you know, like I'm trying to do like copy and paste and I go, why is it not working? I go, oh, because I'm there. Um, any questions on that? So this is back to the stuff that's running on the base machine, and I guess we've pretty well covered this. Uh, both TrueCrypt and PGP. Why? PGP is FIPS 140 compliant, uh, which is important from a legal perspective. And I'm trying to migrate from TrueCrypt to PGP, which is kind of a challenge because I love TrueCrypt, and I've been using it for years, and it just keeps getting better and better all the time. And PGP is just more awkward to use, in my opinion, you know, if you started with PGP, maybe you would like it better and you'd think TrueCrypt was difficult. I don't know. But um, so I'm trying to make that transition, and uh, it's challenging to me, to say the least. Um, SAS I actually have installed, and I've, I don't know if I've ever run it. Sometimes I work on humongous data sets, and some of them are population data sets, you know, like hundreds of millions of records. So it's nice to have someplace powerful and with a lot of disk space to run that. But again, the whole idea here is, you know, as little as possible on the base machine and think hard before putting anything on the base machine. Ask if it could be put in a virtual machine instead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is actually, I don't have huge experience with firewalls, and this was actually one of the things that gave me the most trouble and I'm still working on, but I believe what the configuration is is that the firewall itself um, has our DNS servers in it. So in some sense, the firewall actually has that. But one of the things that I, have, I need to do and I haven't done yet is to open up a policy to our DNS servers so that there's direct communication between our DNS servers at UCSF and the base machine or the virtual machines. And DNS is actually one of the things I'm still a little bit challenged to work with. What, what would uh, be your thought about that? Yeah, just yeah, oh. just that I'm allowing it to do DNS, and the virtual machines. Um, it actually would depend on what the virtual machine is doing. For for the most part, well, no, the virtual machines need DNS too if they're going to get Microsoft Update. Yeah, Microsoft Update is a real pain in the behind, in terms of making this stuff work. And you know, somebody. You tell that to somebody and they immediately say, well, you know, just take over the management of patches yourself. Well, that's an IT function, you know, and to do that for an individual workstation is taking on a lot of grief. And that's kind of contradicts, you know, remember productivity and spending time getting things done, not all, you know, security stuff. Yeah, you had something? But, I mean, what would you think about trying to run, you know, WSIS, you know, like for a single machine? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, 
Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe where this should go is something based on this should actually be, you know, done really at the IT level, you know, not by an individual. Yeah. I mean, maybe I could hook up with our IT folks, you know, and actually start using uh, WSIS instead of Microsoft Update. That could, I could see how that could be a real improvement. Like, one of the things I worry about, you know, is where can this go wrong? And I see, you know, a couple of potential exploits. Um, DNS poisoning, any kind of a DNS poisoning exploit, you know, that got through so that this machine was actually looking up, you know, the wrong address, and then that would be something where, you know, some nasty little thing could phone home. Um, some clever uh, individual might find, you know, like one of the URLs that Microsoft used for, micro for updates that is no longer being used, and is Microsoft really making sure that none of those ever get released, used by somebody else? I don't know, like some of them go way back, you know, some of them have the word NT in them. Um, I would hope that Microsoft would think about that and make sure that those never got picked up by anybody else. But, you know, a combination of DNS and something like that, who knows, yeah. Yeah. That's on a schedule. Yeah. Well, not exactly. I open it up when I feel like it. So when you run it, so then you have to run being an update session. Right. And that's a really good point because as time goes on, that gets quite annoying. It really gives you a reason to not have too many VMs because you've got to manage every one of them and get the updates on it. And not only that, but our Sophos updates and Spy Sweeper updates. So, yeah, that's where, you know, the management becomes a little bit of a pain. That, that hasn't been happening. I haven't seen any updates. It seem, they, those seem to be very stable, and I haven't had. The only time I update them actually is when I build a new VM. I make sure that I go and I get the most recent one. Um, but the truth is that, you know, the DPH, uh, the San Francisco General Hospital, is the main one where that has come up, and I, I never get a clear answer about, you know, which um, which version of the uh, VPN you're supposed to use when you do setup. So it's kind of like, you know, try it and see if it works. And it usually does. Anything else? Uh, okay, moving on. So this is a little bit about the firewall rules. Um, for fairly obvious reasons, I didn't think I wanted to put up on the screen, you know, the actual firewall rules exactly as they are. But this is, these are the main ones. Uh, we've talked about update. We've talked about Sophos. Uh, it is outbound to our Exchange server so that I can get my email. Um, and the specific IP ports. And again, each VPN has its own specific IP. Uh, oh, yeah, inbound. Um, so when I can remote into the thing, I could actually remote into it from here by running the UCSF VPN. So it is accepting input from the UCSF VPN space, you know, RDP connections. Uh, and that's, you know, it's real easy to disable that rule. So a lot of the time I have it disabled. But it, right now it's, a, it's a available because I might need to get into that machine. Um, I do allow ad hoc rules, and I try to be very conscientious and turn off the ad hoc rules, you know, if they're not being used, like, again, for talent or... Um, some very specific sites that I think, you know, I can trust. Uh, oh, yeah, and this is fairly important. So not only is the idea that, you know, some nasty can't phone home, 
but it's also part of the idea to be able to show that the nasty never managed to phone home. So although a firewall is configured to deny everything, you know, that's not approved by default, it's not going to log everything. So this was something I learned later on is, um, and if you haven't used, if you're good on firewalls, this probably seems silly, but if you don't, um, it's actually very important. You create an explicit deny all rule at the very bottom of the rule set, and you enable logging on that one. And that's how you get logging of everything that was denied. So that's how you can prove that, you know, Mr. Conficker never managed to get a hold of anybody else. So, lessons learned. Um, I thought I knew what I was doing, and uh, I learned that setting up a firewall is a learning curve, and it's not as simple as, okay, I know what ports I want open, and I know what IP addresses I want them open to. It ain't that easy. Um, you've got to be able to think the way the firewall thinks, or to tell it in the language that it wants to hear. So, it's, it's a job configuring one, and I did need quite a lot of help, and I actually did get quite a lot of help um, uh, verbal help from uh, from our folks who actually manage the firewalls. Uh, Linux. Um, so, if you think this is ridiculously expensive, uh, what I've done, um, you can actually accomplish uh, pretty much the same thing. You could have the base machine could be Linux, uh, or you could actually just run the free version of ESX, which is a variant of Linux on your base machine. And if you're running Linux, then you can get your virtualization for free. Um, you can either run uh, Sun, um, I forget the name of the Sun product, but there's a Sun Virtual Box is a free virtual environment that you can run on Linux. You can also run VMware Server uh, for free on Linux. So the VMware becomes free if you're using Linux as your host OS also. So that can get your cost way down. Plus the fact that you're leaner, so you could probably get away with less memory. And by the way, the thing that turned out to be an issue with all this, um, processor, no problem. I still can never figure out how to max out, you know, a modern processor. I don't know how you do it. Um, but memory, it's real easy to burn up memory when you start running virtual machines. And, you know, the memory interacts with the disk access, so fast disk and lots of memory um, seem to be pretty important if you do this in Windows. So Linux, you could probably get away with less. Um, you could also avoid the outbound hardware firewall by using, you know, an old box of some kind and just running SmoothWall or one of the free Linux firewalls on that. So you still have a separate box that can't be turned off from uh, behind, and you get it a whole lot cheaper. Um, it'll use up more electricity than a Juniper, but you know, you could just use, like, you know, something you were probably going to scrap otherwise. Uh, and this, you know, this really becomes a learning experience. I mean, I've learned a lot from this, and I'm going to continue to learn, because when you have to specifically watch what ports are being opened and, um, you know, what IPs are being used, um, you learn a lot about what's going on in your network and in your own computer. So... This is actually the final slide of conclusions. Um, as I said, it's a work in progress. I want to talk a little bit about the balance. This is a point that I haven't made, but something that I see happen an awful lot in the security world is people design something that is really, really tight. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, trying to out-tech each other. You know, how tight can we make this thing? 
And unfortunately, what often happens is something is created that's impossible to live with. So then all of a sudden, you know, you're on a deadline and you need to get a lot of work done. And what do you do? Allow all. You know, you suddenly just turn off the firewall and let everything go through it. And I'm not saying if I've seen any examples of that recently, but, you know, it's really something to think about. You've got to create something that you can live with and really think about that. Um, that has to be a major part of the initial design. Um, I think we all know, you know, that if you do it 99.5% right and you just forget that 0.5%, well, guess what? There's some scanning traffic on the Internet that's looking for that 0.5%, and it's going to hit you if there's any kind of an opening. Um, simplicity is always good. I've tried to simplify this thing, um, and I keep trying to think about how I to simplify it. Um, it's, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, again, you know, it's real easy to create something that is like a great design on paper, but then you've got to live with it, and you've got to remember to stick to it. Uh, I mentioned the open source or lower cost alternatives, how you can do something very much like this um, without giving a penny to Microsoft, uh, VM, VMware, uh, or, uh, or any fire, hardware firewall manufacturer. And, you know, yeah, you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. So that's really it. Um, and it looks like we finished a bit early. Uh, any other questions or, you know, just some points of discussion? Yeah. I just like having Firefox as well as Internet Explorer. Um, I do occasionally, you know, allow some web browsing, like, again, like Talend. You know, I really feel like I need to get to Talend from the base machine. And, oh, the, for example, there's a rule that's not enabled all the time, but there's a rule that enables um, getting to juniper.net from the base machine, right, which has turned out to be essential, you know, when I'm trying to figure something out, you know, with Juniper technical support. Um, so, again, you know, it's ad hoc, and, you know, I just, uh, from everything I hear, you know, I just continually feel that um, Firefox is safer most of the time than Internet Explorer is. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly it. You're exactly right. I mean, I just can't see any way that you can have a secure workstation that has general web browsing ability. I don't see how you do it. So that's why the bifurcation into two separate machines. And I even thought about, you know, okay, well, on the base machine, let's have a virtual machine, you know, that's used for the general web browsing. And I don't think that's a horrible solution, you know, as long as you're not sharing disk space or something like that. But then when I looked at that, I thought, well, the only problem is then I've got to open up the firewall for port 80 so that that virtual machine can get out. And I can give the virtual machine its own IP address you know, its own 192.168 IP address so that it has a different firewall rule and so the main machine or no other VM can use that to get out. And that, I think, is pretty secure. But I just thought, okay, what could, you know, what could a nasty do? And the nasties are getting smarter all the time. And it occurred to me, well, what a nasty might do is it might use IP spoofing, you know, to use the hole in the firewall that was meant for the virtual machine but use it from somewhere else. Now, that's pretty obscure, you know, and we've never seen anything like that. But who knows? Yeah. 
that was one of the discussions um, that was uh, very early on in the design of this. Um, and I think it's a great idea, and I think it would be a great way for an IT organization to do this. But I just don't think it's feasible, you know, for me as an individual to do that. Because, you know, the, it's the issue that, you know, you've got to maintain and update the image. So an image that's good today and is co considered safe and reliable today, a month from now might be considered a very dangerous image because of a vulnerability that's been identified later. So as an individual, I just can't take on that amount of IT management. But if you did something like this at an institutional level, yeah, I think that would be a fabulous idea. Yeah. Well, it's for one person, you know, who is expected to get this done, you know, like in my spare time. Anything else? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been a great audience.